Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a secret agent for Omega Sector masquerading as a filmmaker. And I am Caroline Sita, and I am a film and TV critic and definitely not a secret agent for the Omega Center. Sector? Center. You decide where the truth is and what the place is called. Welcome to Roll Calling, which I guess I already say in the intro. Uh, The way this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love, and we are right in the middle of our Jamie Lee Curtis cycle, which has been very fun so far. We have fled suburban serial killers in Halloween. We have double-crossed our partners all the way through A Fish Called Wanda. And here we are now. Combining the two. Combining the two? Well, kind of. Maybe? Not really. Um, Here we are with an absolutely bananas film, True Lies. True Lies. Truly it is. Genuine Deceptions. Actual falsehoods. (laughs) I am really uh excited trepidatious to discuss this movie with you i'm so curious to hear what your thoughts are and your like relationship to this movie is i feel the same way i watched it last night uh for the first time in probably a decade and yes i just i just could not wait to get into it i just feel there is a lot of we've got a big juicy meal on the table in front of us i don't know do you want to go first caroline no i want you to go first well i feel like when you're the host you make me go first and then when i'm the host you also make me go first that could be what's happening. But I think in the, I, I do feel like I have a very particular take, and I'm curious to hear your general thoughts uncolored by that, while acknowledging that perhaps I have held you hostage in this podcast in terms of <laughs> making you <laughs> reveal your opinions first. Well, I think it's a perfect film without any flaws. Now Great. I've said my... Done. <laughs> no, uh, I don't think that. Um, and yet it was more fun to watch than I expected it to be. Certain parts were more appalling to me certain parts were less than i expected it was a it was a, a road trip full of surprises i would say as i sometimes do that if you were to be disgusted by this film i would have a very hard time talking you out of that opinion but i enjoyed myself more watching it last night than i expected to Okay, that's- I think that's actually good because I have I'm coming in with a more negative take, but I uh-huh. actually think it would be good if we can counterbalance a little bit here because this is a very beloved movie. I feel like there's like looking on my little letterboxed of just like what the general reviews were, definitely yeah. lots of like three and four star, you know, nostalgic fun, has its problematic moments, but you know, has a lot of fun to counteract that. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad we can have that point of view represented a little bit too. Yes. My experience is that I remember distinctly remember watching this movie as a kid and finding it deeply disturbing. And I've always – I haven't watched it since. And I've always been like, what was that? Was there – maybe there was just like an adult sexuality that I wasn't prepared for and I wouldn't find upsetting today. Maybe I was misinterpreting things. But re-watching it, I actually feel like I had all of the same – qualms that I had as a kid, I can just understand more why they upset me so much, which is that I think that this is a comedy 
that just spends its entire time punching down at less powerful people mm-hmm. and has no awareness that that is what it's doing and becomes this incredibly like while on the surface this incredibly fun James Cameron we blew everything up action movie the core of its story is this like toxic horrible <laughs> not intelligently subversive narrative that i think is horrible towards you know islamic and muslim and um, arabic people in general and then really horrible towards women and i really did not enjoy rewatching this movie almost at all huh i think that where the fun came for me was in i think that i expected the action to be more hardcore serious because i feel like There are a lot of action movies, probably going back to the 80s, definitely in the 90s, and certainly now, movies that, even if they put in kind of like a few, a few sort of obligatory jokes, they are like so deadly serious through their action scenes. I I recently watched White House Down. No. Mm. No. Olympus Olympus has fallen. fallen. No. White House Down is fun. Was it Jamie Foxx or... Um, it was Jamie Foxx and Channing Tatum. Yeah, that's White House Down. It's not Uh-oh, that now fun. we really have to fight if you don't like White House Down. It's kind of fun. Those are fun people, but so much of that... I don't know. I just I just am picturing, like... Just picturing him, like, sparring with Jason Clark and, like... The, like, person-to-person combat of it all is so deadly serious. And I think that I expected that here. And... I had forgotten how much of a sort of a sense of humor runs through the action scenes. You know, there's sort of constantly this, like, if you're going to have a fight in a bathroom, you have somebody who's, like, pooping on the toilet. (laughs) Or, you know, I mean, I'll start early on with what was my favorite action scene in this movie, which I would honestly, I would stack up against, really, my favorite action scenes of all time. The horse chases a motorcycle. Mm Mm-hmm. Already fun. I like wrote down horse chases motorcycle question mark question mark question mark, and then they go into a hotel. So I added in a hotel, <laughs> and then they get into elevators and they chase each other up the elevators with the motorcycle in one elevator and a horse in another elevator. That was so funny and fun to me, and I kind of expected this to be deadly grim in its tone. Mm. And I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised that it wasn't that. But I will say, so I I paused the movie 10 minutes in because Emily is going to bed and I went to say goodnight to her. She's like, how's it going? And I was like, I think I kind of already have this movie figured out. And I had written down in the first scene, which has, I mean, the first scene has all of his like, you know, switching into the tuxedo. Should we give a little bit of maybe plot context and summary for people who haven't? rewatched in years as we hadn't yeah do you want to do it or shall i uh i'll start it out maybe we can trade off so it's arnold schwarzenegger it sort of opens on like basically a bond riff like he he swims into this fancy party sneaks in does a sexy dance with the wonderful tia carrera where has she gone bring her back um and sort of just like does you know the suave james bond routine exits they say, can I see your invitation? He says, this is my invitation. And then blows <laughs> up the complex and like runs, like slides backwards down a hill shooting guns and smacks two dogs' heads together. Yes, yes, exactly. Stay. <laughs> and then he 
he goes home to we learn his sort of normal suburban life where he is he's married to Jamie Lee Curtis, Elijah Dushku is their daughter. They have no idea he's a spy. They think that he is a totally normal computer salesman who just also happens to be a six foot two bodybuilder who is an Austrian a robot. Gigantic Austrian robot. <laughs> but the premise is that to his wife and child, he is this boring, normal guy, and who would ever suspect that he has a whole secret life as a double agent who is seeking out this terrorist group called the Crimson Jihad that is trying to blow up America with nuclear weapons. That's right. So that's the beginning. And that's, you were responding well to the opening. So the opening I would say 10 minutes. it was literally like, you know, shortly after he conks two dogs, they jump. Two, yeah. <laughs> two Doberman pitchers jump in and he grabs them and sort of knocks them together. And he's got his, you know, handgun with infinity bullets. And all the way through this, He's, you know, he's talking on the, like, headset to Tom Arnold in the van and his sort of, like, other minor assistant, Faisal, and is the the sort of, like, bro-y dialogue between them. Lots of, like, casual 90s, like, ditch the bitch kind of sexism. And Faisal has this, like, very shoehorned in, like, I'm, I'm fucking a girl metaphor when he's, like, cracks through a security code as the kind of hacker guy so i paused the movie 10 minutes and i want to say goodnight to emily and i was like already i'm thinking i love fun dumb action movies i love what this thing wants to be but it is a shame there is no there is nothing inherent we would forget sometimes because so many of them are but there's nothing inherent to the idea of a fun dumb action movie that requires it to be so hatefully misogynistic or racist as i at that moment was expecting it was going to be it hadn't sort of explicitly been yet there's nothing inherent to that genre that requires it be so punch downy as you say i i completely agree with your conclusion that the humor often punches down and that is what leaves a really sour taste on this movie um and you can get that right within the next the first 10 minutes and as it goes on you get that all the way through and feel Mm -hmm. that way I do agree that the opening, at least, it feels like you're saying like a familiar level of, okay, they're tossing off some sexist jokes, but it's not like egregious per se. It is sort of what you would expect mm-hmm. in action movies. And that continues into like, the there's almost like two big opening set pieces to this movie because we get the one that's in the Switzerland mansion. We get a little interlude where we see Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's playing Harry Tasker, so sort of see him with his family. Then he goes on to the aforementioned horse slash motorcycle chase through the hotel sequence that then becomes a bathroom fight that a hundred percent inspired that bathroom fight in in mission impossible fallout i don't know if that has been acknowledged Mm. but i was like this just is that exact same fight and i i tie it back to a bathroom fight in the warriors which is my Mm. favorite of the three bathroom fights that's from like 78 or 79 but the um, bathroom fight trilogy yes it goes what goes bathroom fight into into chasing because art malik comes in afterwards and shoots them all of that i was i was actually realizing i think we don't talk enough about how influential this movie is on modern blockbuster studio filmmaking. This mm-hmm. was the first movie that was made for $100 million. It was the first that had a budget that crossed that threshold. This is James Cameron coming off the back of Aliens and 
the first Terminator and, and T2, which was like a massive yeah. game-changing blockbuster that is more regularly acknowledged. But I think specifically the mix of comedy and action in this movie and the way it is as much a comedy as it is an action movie, yeah. I think this is what every studio blockbuster is trying to be today. It's like if you're an action movie, you also have to be a comedy. And if you're a comedy movie, you also have to be an action movie. And I think yeah. that's actually led – that's like what – I didn't see the new Men in Black, the one with Chris Hemsworth and – um Tessa Thompson. Tessa Thompson. No, me neither. But that, the whole vibe of the trailers were very much that. It was not just, oh, this is a buddy adventure like Men in Black. It was like, here's a globe-trotting blockbuster action movie or all of these spy comedies, the spy who dumped me, and like that that Lovebirds movie with Kumail Nanjiani. I was just thinking about that because I was watching that movie uh, a few months ago and I was thinking about how it has, it's got all of these like weird action scenes stuck in which are really kind of like lame because it's clearly like, it's a movie by people who wanted to make a comedy. Mm-hmm. But then- they just have to stick that in. And I think no one does this more than Marvel, right? Like this is 100% the formula that Marvel's going for, where it totally. is a comedy and it's an action movie. And I think Marvel mostly does it really well. But I just think that True Lies, this mix of comedy and action is so influential, maybe in a bad way. Like I think there are movies like Lovebirds or or probably you know, Men in Black that could be a little more comfortable just being a comedy and not feeling like the only way, or Stuber or any movie that, What's his name? What's what's Dave Batista, Batista does? Batista you know, and I the feel Rock. Like, Honestly, and the Rock. Yes, all the former WWE stars they just get really put into this formula to a really high. They just seem to be basically trying to do True Lies. Yeah, trying to do Arnold's career and this movie in particular. And I don't know if that is good for Hollywood as a whole. It feels like it gets really repetitive. It does, but I would say that. If I can separate this film into its component elements, its blend of action and comedy, I think, works quite well. Frankly, better than I expected it to be. I, I was sort of going into this expecting it to be a slog, and that I was expecting the, the racism and the sexism, and that I thought would be my only takeaway. So I think my, like, in this first part of the podcast, the, you know, discussing the positive vibes, it would be that I was pleasantly surprised by how much the comic beats were landing for me. Mm -hmm. There's two really funny jump cuts to me. I like one where, you know, Tom, Tom Arnold is driving Arnold over to a place. And <laughs> I he's kept like, in my head saying Tom Arnold Schwarzenegger. Tom Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's, a, it's like a Jeopardy before and after. He's driving him over to a place and he says, reality check. And Arnold starts saying his cover story and it like mm -hmm. cuts immediately to him saying that. There's also a really good one that Bill Paxton does when he's like, uh-uh, Arnold asks him what's his angle when they're driving the car. He says, uh-uh, can't tell you, trade secret, jump cut to, okay, so what do women want? They want <laughs> and can I take a quick sidebar? Yeah, R.I.P. Bill Paxton. Oh, my gosh. I miss you so much. And we previously covered him in Edge of Tomorrow, so I feel That's like right. maybe the stealth mission of our podcast is to get in as many Bill Paxton supporting roles as possible. It'll be interesting to see who the like runners are that we aren't covering, but we do sort of get a look at their career anyway. Paxton mm -hmm. is definitely, he's definitely a contender. I mean, the thing is, James Cameron knows how to make a movie, right? Mm -hmm. Like famously, he is famous for knowing how to make a movie. The director behind the first two Terminators, the second Alien movie, Titanic, which I think is objectively the best movie ever made. <laughs> I was going to ask, what do you think about these movies? And Titanic is the one I'm most curious about. So you oh, think it's just the best movie ever made? I think it is inarguably the best <laughs> movie ever made. Like, name one thing you want in a movie, 
that isn't in Titanic. You can't because it has everything. Well, and I like an Irishy dance. It, oh, wait. No, no. It does have that. Oh. I like a... I kind of like some like melodrama of like a, a you know a, a sad man in a suit wandering. Oh no, it's got that too. Hmm. I like a Billy Zane playing a very morally complex villain. I put the diamond in the coat, and I put the coat on her. Truly, a per- I mean the amount of time. I think my sister and I in quarantine probably watched Titanic. It's just always on TV, so you can just always flip on and watch a perfect part of the movie because every part of the movie is perfect. I uh, see. That's funny. I haven't watched Titanic in a long time. Um, Ned, let's watch. Let's do a. Let's do a. A Leo, a Kate, a both. Hmm. You know, those people both have really solid careers. Maybe look for it in 2022. Look for our Leo and or Kate miniseries, okay. or maybe our Billy Zane, the Phantom. <laughs> Um, I also am probably a huge not. fan of the Terminator films. That yeah. is one of my favorite. That probably is my favorite action franchise. Mm-hmm. That's not a superhero thing. Love, love, love. I came to those like later in life. Like I didn't watch them growing up for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I freaking love them so much. Can never get too much Terminator. And I actually rewatched Avatar, which is the other most recent Jim Cameron project, even though it came out in 2009. Um, but I rewatched that recently. Like, I was sort of just thinking, oh, I'll watch this and sort of like roast it. It'll be dumb. Everyone forgets it or, you know, forget, says it has no memorable plot. Honestly, it is fun. It's, I get why it connected well. It doesn't have an interesting plot, but it has phenomenal world building and great action. And I see you. That's the part (laughs) I remember. I have no fond feelings towards Avatar. I will say the last time I saw it, it was 30 feet high and in three dimensions. So I have not really given it a revisit. And I resented its its like box office exploding status. I was like, how can something with so so many like dumb aspects to it, such a like a I don't know, sort of hacky script be this popular? But I don't know, maybe it's not as hacky as I remember it. It's pretty hacky, but I just think that the things it does well, mm-hmm. it does so well. Maybe like you're saying about true lies, like you sort of were blown away by how good the action was. Mm-hmm. I think Avatar has a little bit of that. The whole world will be ask the question of do we want more avatar because i think james cameron is making like numbers two through seven or something that's his upcoming projects he's got two through five on his imdb his imdb is so puzzling like for a guy who's had such an impact he has made relatively few films his directed by section is really thin there's like Mm -hmm. a few shorts that i've never heard of there's all these documentaries from the phase where he just got obsessed with like Dredging up sunken boats. Yeah, there's all these like water documentaries. There's the action movies we talked about. Mm -hmm. There's five upcoming avatars and there's like nothing else. Yeah, the only one we haven't shouted out is The Abyss, which I've never seen. That's his sort of like famous flop underwater story. Is it a story? Uh, it did not, at least it did not meet expectations. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's, it's remembered fondly within his filmography. But I agree that in, in looking at his, IMDb, I was actually shocked by how f- relatively how few movies he's made. It's just mm-hmm. that each movie is the most influential movie that's ever been made. So he really does have this outsized impact. Yes, and this outsized budgetary impact as well. Totally. I, I, I found a contemporary Entertainment Weekly article that said, uh, Cameron had demonstrated yet again that though his budgets rise off the scale, he may be the most finely calibrated movie-making instrument in Hollywood. 
Ask about reports that True Lies is the most expensive movie ever made, $120 million is the price tag bandied about, yada, yada, yada. And then this sentence, True Lies, a two-hour and 21-minute computer-enhanced action comedy isn't just designed to wow viewers and thump the competition. It's also meant to cement Cameron's identity as a fearless and free-spending ultra-macho perfectionist, which I think it kind of has. I mean, that's my Mm -hmm. impression of him. Well, maybe let's get into the chunk of the plot that I think are where really all of my qualms with this movie has. The sort of like second act of the movie, almost the main focus of the movie, except the movie is then weirdly segmented. It will sort of introduce and drop it. But a good chunk of the movie is about the marriage between Arnold Schwarzenegger's Harry and Jamie Lee Curtis's Helen. Can I and say they're both just, yeah, a go little, just a little bit more about the, the way the plot advances? Oh, yeah. Because I was taking note at minute 50, I wrote the note. I said, at minute 50, Jamie Lee Curtis is really not a character at all. Mm-hmm. We only see her. She has probably like two minutes of screen time prior to that and it is really all terrorist catching action comedy and it he like it sort of they get a lead they learn about the crimson jihad he fights in a bathroom he chases art malik on a horse and then art malik jumps off the building into another building swimming pool and exits the door and exits the movie for 45 minutes (laughs) and the very next scene is arnold schwarzenegger goes to meet jamie lee curtis at lunch, hears, overhears her talking on the phone to a quote-unquote mystery man, does the, like, sad Arrested Development walk about how <laughs> she's cheating on him, and the movie takes the hardest left turn into being about a completely different plot. It completely drops the terrorists, takes this, like, ancillary bit character out of Helen, and suddenly puts her, essentially, in the front seat, and becomes completely obsessed in a way that is not that self-aware, as you say, with this affair. So please take it from there. Talk, tell us about that middle act of the movie. Well, it is. It's like the structure of this movie is a sandwich, and the two pieces of bread are a very conventional Arnold Schwarzenegger as James Bond fighting jihadist action movie. Mm-hmm. And then the middle is a semi-satirical metaphor about marriage yes (laughs) that doesn't really go with the bread this is not a sandwich that makes sense and we should probably say that this is based on this is a remake of a french film lot you say you you actually speak french la totale la totale (laughs) so i feel like essentially what happened is that james cameron is responsible for the bread which is what he does well which is a funny Mm -hmm. but you know takes the action seriously action movie. The middle is his attempt to do a farce and a French farce at that. And I do not think that is a skill that James Cameron is capable of doing. And I feel like that's maybe why the middle is what feels so sticky. But the setup of this is, as you mentioned, Harry feels bad that he's sort of been a completely shitty husband and father, which he is very much presented as. Definitely. Literally doesn't know how old his own daughter is. And so he goes to visit Helen at work and he'll he's going to take her out to lunch and he overhears that she has this mystery man she's been speaking to. And so he assumes she's having an affair and essentially just starts using all of the resources of his, what's it called, Omega, the sector. Omega sector to spy on her, discovers that she is having these meetups with this man named Simon, who's played by the aforementioned Bill Paxton. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, we discover that in fact, it is not a conventional affair. Bill Paxton, his whole shtick, his like way to get women, his incel playbook or whatever, is to pretend that he is a secret agent and that he is roping them into his world 
of being a secret agent and add some spice into their boring suburban lives in order to seduce them. And so he's pulling this whole move on Helen and getting her to come back to his little um, like trailer that he's like, oh, my, my spy base is in New York and my mansion in Paris. They're all being bugged. So we have to go to this terrible little hideaway I have and, and tries to seduce her. And she is in it for the spy stuff, maybe is a little bit attracted to him, but doesn't actually want to go through with the affair. But Arnold, nevertheless, catches her in what seems to be the act, kidnaps her, puts her in an interrogation room. Yeah. And then we have a an extended scene in which Arnold and Tom Arnold, our two Arnolds, are disguising their voices in this terrifying way, interrogating Helen to get her to confirm that she didn't have an affair and she actually does love Harry. And then Harry's plan to spice up their marriage is, oh, clearly Helen wants to be a secret agent. So I will literally coerce her into being a secret agent by telling her if she doesn't do this, her entire life and her family's lives will be destroyed. And then I will send her on a mission in which she has to play a sex worker who goes to a hotel room and is forced to do a striptease dance in front of what we know to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, but what she thinks is just some sort of evil weapons dealer or something. And then we get back into the conventional action stuff by the fact that in the middle of this wacky farce mayhem of a man fully abusing his wife, they actually get captured by the jihadists. And his plot is to, yeah, his plot is to get her there, have her striptease for her, for him, and then rape her, basically. Yeah, yeah. And to the point where she attacks him with, a telephone. Yes. And as you say, after exiting the movie for 45 minutes, the terrorist plot literally not figuratively bursts back into the movie. They um, they fly in through the doors. No explanation is ever given for how they knew that he would be here. But they <laughs> yeah. just come crashing back into the movie and then it goes back into. And then you have a chapter, you have a kind of a two-part act three. Mm-hmm. The first of which is supposed to kind of blend those first two by being Harry and Helen together fighting off the terrorists when uh, like out in Key West or something. And then you have a, a final finale where actually he just leaves her and goes and just straight up action movie saves Eliza Dushku with a Harrier jet. Yes. Yes. This is a long a movie. <laughs> yeah. I think it's not... I remember being shocked when I went to go see Pirates of the Caribbean 2002 or three. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was two and a half hours. That was the, like the longest movie I'd seen at that time. Now it's not so strange. I mean, I think we have actually come to want very long studio blockbusters, which is interesting because we think of people as having short attention spans. But but yeah, uh, the Entertainment Weekly article from 1994 commented multiple times on this being extremely long for an action movie. Mm-hmm. I think it is long for a comedy as well. It's one thing if you're a slightly more serious, substantial movie. Maybe mm-hmm. it feels like you are you want to live in that world more. I think this movie would really benefit by being trimmed down. I actually have a bunch of notes for this movie <laughs> in terms of things that I think would fix it. Here's my number one. Yes. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bill Paxton should switch roles. Interesting. Because. Okay, hit me. It does not make the the basic premise of this movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger, that everyone in his life is like, that guy could never be a spy, this boring computer salesman who has nothing interesting about him. No way in the world. I could never in a million years believe that, which is, they did this a lot with Arnold Schwarzenegger. They were like, yeah, you know, normal suburban dad, Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is what all suburban dads just are a like. guy who wants to get his kid a toy for Christmas. He's just any old guy. <laughs> there was really some mass brainwashing of... <laughs> 
the absurdity of Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was just, it was just like we all were given those glasses that they wear in the Wizard of Oz book that tricks everyone into thinking the city is green. Like that's what we were <laughs> given with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Whereas I actually think it's very funny. If you're married to Bill Paxton, you're not thinking Bill Paxton is an international spy. And if the man seducing you looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's a very funny commentary that you are thinking the real life spy is the guy who looks like the muscle builder that Hollywood always sells us as a spy. Mm-hmm. When in reality, of course, the point of being a spy is that you blend in places. I think that is inherently a very funny subversion in a way that the opposite, it's like they don't they don't lean into the the ridiculousness of the premise of Arnold being a normal guy. So it becomes like a joke without a punchline. This being one of the most iconic Arnold roles, it is like so hard for me to uncouple true lies from Arnold Schwarzenegger in my brain. But I completely agree that that would be a much smarter and more subversive movie. And frankly, as I said before, Bill Paxton, I adore and would love to see actually sort of navigating these. Although I think he does chew up the scenery with the part that he is playing. Oh, he's great. I think, but here's the thing, right? Like Bill Paxton can act. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger is a great movie star. He can be used phenomenally well. Again, T2 and T1, two of my favorite films. Yeah. But I do not think Arnold is capable of playing the subtle nuances that would lead this power within a marriage dynamic to not be creepy as fuck. Like, Mm -hmm. he makes it more creepy because he has no humanity to him. And so then it really becomes, this is a physically imposing man with the entire strength of the U.S. government behind him who is using all of that power, right? Like, he he is the most conventionally powerful figure we could have. He's using all of that power to punch down at his wife for, frankly... Something that really, like, he is such a terrible husband (laughs) that her being driven to an affair, this is, like, her offense is not that egregious, Mm -hmm. right? Like, he is lying to her in every facet of her life. And in addition to having to lie to her for his job, he is just being a completely shitty, disinterested husband. And so he is a fully powerful figure who is using all of that power to punch down at this woman who really hasn't done that much wrong. And there's nothing subversive about that, right? Like, comedy comes from power dynamics being upended or for Mm -hmm. things being surprised. But in fact, an agent of the US government abusing women, that's just normal life, baby. That's not comedy. That's just like what, that's just the world we live in. I agree. So I think that in, in switching this in some way, or in making Harry a figure that you can sort of laugh at, or that I mean, that's the other big note I have. Obviously, this movie should be one where Harry learns his lesson at the end. But in fact, this movie becomes one that argues Harry was correct all along. Actually, the solution was that his wife and daughter needed to appreciate him more without him changing anything about his behavior. Also, his wife needed to get sexier along the way. And this is the solution to everyone's problems. And this is when you look into James Cameron's personal life and you're like, yeah, this is a man who's been divorced five times. And I'm really (laughs) seeing where a lot of this is coming from. And I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger, also a man famous for having affairs. Like, these are two men that are famous for having affairs, not maybe, at least for James Cameron, not being the nicest collaborators. And that this is the movie they make, like, feels unsurprising to me and, like, very icky and not good comedy. That is almost what offends me more than the sexism. It's like, you are so inherently sexist, you are sacrificing what could be very funny comedy Uh because you cannot see past your sexist prism of the world. And that is offensive to me as a comedy fan, that you cannot prioritize comedy over your internalized biases. This is is the loop I was really going through last night when I was Mm -hmm. watching this. That you feel the whole idea of 
their whole goal of making an action comedy is really self-sabotaged by the tremendous scaled power imbalance at the heart of this movie. Yeah, and that there's no, like, that's not, again, that's not subversive. You need to Mm -hmm. subvert something within a comedy. And that could be that Harry starts out this super machismo guy who is overusing his power, which to some degree the movie's aware of, because every once in a while Tom Arnold will be like, well, this seems like bad. (laughs) And then Arnold will be like, it's fine. And they're like, yep, I guess it's fine. So I think you could set up where he's a horrible machismo guy, but that is subverted in some way. Jamie Lee Curtis over, you know, overturns the power dynamic at some point uh, and that he learns his lesson or he's humbled in some way. That would be a very conventional way to write this story. But the thing is, this movie is on Harry's side. This movie does not think Harry has a flaw. It sort of has to at least wink at the idea that you shouldn't use your power this way. But the whole time the movie is nudging you and being like, yeah, but guys, you know what I mean. Like, obviously, if you thought your wife was cheating on you, like, you can do this, whatever you want. Like, this is such a boys will be boys movie Mm -hmm. that like just this movie cannot conceptualize that women would be watching it or that anyone who's had the experience, you know what I mean? Like, the movie is like, oh, how funny would it be if you tricked your wife into doing a striptease and then you went to go like have sex with her. And in your mind, this is a fun and flirty thing. And the movie is not thinking, oh, what would her perspective be of that I'm locked in a room with a physically imposing stranger who's now like cornering me on a bed and this is wild when this is coming from james cameron who gave us you know like some of the greatest female protagonists of all time in both the terminator franchise and in aliens as well like i don't i do not understand how he made those movies and then went on to make this movie and that's why i wonder if there is a toxicity from his personal life that is coming out in this movie that, I guess that would be my less charitable read. My more charitable read would be that maybe he's just pulling a lot from this French farce. I don't. I haven't seen that movie, so I don't know hmm. if that has all these same issues. But either he is replicating something that's very problematic in that movie, or like missing the mark <laughs> on a level of farce that that is not being translated into this like big dumb action blow up movie. I do think it is sometimes reasonable to speculate about. I think about a uh, Temple of Doom. Indiana Jones mm-hmm. and the Temple of Doom, a movie that I think some people disagree, and I would really love to be persuaded otherwise, but I think has one of the like stupidest, most annoying, most like pound your head against the wall, frustrating female protagonists in mm-hmm. all of action films. And it's like, I forget if it was Steven Spielberg or George Lucas or both that were like, yeah, well, it just gotten divorced. And uh, I think I put a lot of my darkness into that movie. I'm like, well, no shit. You made this yeah. fucking heinous woman character. As a well, and again, another movie own. where in the first in the series, you have a great female character. Absolutely. Karen Allen. Yeah, and then Karen it's Allen's like, so oh, yeah, good. this is the thing. I mean, again, this is the thing where it's like, oh, yeah, men can just switch on a dime. <laughs> there is like, yes. Yeah. Deeply upsetting. Anyway, I think the power dynamics here are so upsetting. That interrogation scene, which Jamie Lee Curtis plays beautifully. Oh, yeah. Well, what's what's I think makes that scene really excruciating is that she and what I think is going to be an interesting element in talking about all these things is that like she pours so much into it. And in that Mm -hmm. case, she really plays without any goofy bits at all. And she clearly has like such a strong comedy muscle, which I want to talk about. But there's no punch pulled on the emotional reality of her terror and distress in that scene and the direction and like score and arnold's acting really fight that because that beat in the movie at the end at the end of that scene is played with this sort of like sentimental romantic music Mm -hmm. to sort of be like he realized she always did love him oh his wife was always faithful to him so now 
he's going to give her a gift. And it's a, it's a sociopathic gift. But what is tricky with that scene is that she is playing a level of genuine emotional distress that is like really hard to look at. Mm-hmm. So that is the scene of the movie that I think is really chilling. And I also think that's where having Bill Paxton in the role would make such a difference. Because if you have an actual actor who can be responding to what Jamie Lee Curtis is doing and Mm -hmm. slowly softening and coming to the realization, even if there's not a line of dialogue, but you just see on their face that they're coming to the realization of like how much they have mistreated her. Mm -hmm. And that scene really misses the mark in the writing and that the turning point should be she gives this beautiful monologue about like my life has become so like like stifling and boring and there's no fun and adventure in it and I feel like I'm going to look back and regret everything. And, and that should be the moment where Harry switches yeah. where he's like, oh my God, I didn't realize how much pain my wife was going in. Instead, Arnold is like stone-faced through all of that and then it's like, okay, but did you sleep with the guy? And she's like, no. And he's like, okay, do you still love your husband? And she's like, yeah. And then his then exactly what you're saying, the earnest music comes. And it's like, yeah. dude, you weren't even listening to her pouring her heart out you literally like did not care until you got to control her sexuality and confirmed that she was fully yours and didn't have hadn't been tainted by anything else do you know what i mean i think this also would have been more interesting movie if helen had actually had an affair because Mm -hmm. then and then it would have been like oh they they had an affair because they were really split up and clearly he's off flirting with tia carrera during all of his missions like it does not feel like he has been faithful to helen if they had had a separation where they both had affairs and then discovered their passion together that would have been a much more interesting movie but this cameron script is obsessed with like these women belonging to these men and remaining pure to them to the point where we have a disturbing comedic bit that is tom arnold and arnold schwarzenegger discussing the virginity of arnold schwarzenegger's 14 year old daughter like what is that comedy impulse that is coming through that that is like the jokes that we're making. Like yeah. I found that scene also to be small, but like representative of this movie's bigger problems. Yeah, there are small and big moments. The little toss away line, like women can't live with him, can't kill him. And that's the like punchline at the end of a scene. Yep. Lots of Tom Arnold's lines. It's a fascinating thing they do with that character because sometimes he almost seems to like be a reasonable moral center. But then I'm like, I don't know if actually you intended these <laughs> yeah. as reasonable moral center or if this was just supposed to be like, ah, oh, by the book Gibson, I'll stick up his butt, doesn't want me to use the use the resources. I, I I agree that like what is really it is chilling to watch now and know like just the more sort of like public scrutiny is directed on law enforcement and like intelligence operatives. Mm-hmm. How much there's this like stupid bait and switch when talking about like we're gonna put in new rules, but it's I feel so well documented that rules about what law enforcement officers can and cannot do and how they can or cannot utilize the state resources at their disposal for their own personal vendettas. It's so clear that there is a culture of permissiveness. And Mm -hmm. so if you think about that at all, every time he's like, bug her phone, let's bug her bag. It's like, yeah, of course, that fucking happens all the time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, all that stuff is, you know, bone chilling. My other note for this section of the movie is that at the end of the interrogation scene, Arnold has, once he's discovered that, I keep switching back between Arnold and Harry, but once Harry has discovered that Helen still loves him, he's like, okay, clearly she's missing something in our marriage. I want to give her this sense of sparky fun that she was finding with Simon. Mm -hmm. So his thought is like, I'll recruit her into being a spy. Very basic note that this movie should have done. The way that scene is played is he says, here's what we're, as the sort of faceless voice that's coming over the speaker, he says, you must be a spy or you're in 
entire life will be ruined. We are forcing you into this. That scene should have been played that the faceless guy who she's meeting with says, okay, Helen, you've done well in the interrogation. You've proven yourself to be a good spy. If you'd like, you can join the ranks of our spies. And that would give her complete agency into choosing to be a spy. And it would give the idea that Because that moment is presented like Harry has given Helen a present of getting to be a spy. But what's actually happened is he has fully coerced her into something that she doesn't necessarily want to do. Whereas if you had literally presented it as a present where he's saying, would you like to do this? And she realizes, ooh, actually, I would like to make my life more exciting. I would like to become a spy. And if she has taken the agency in that moment, that makes all of the, the next series of sort of miscommunications or weird power dynamics when she's on her first mission, that makes that all the more funny because she is chosen to do this as opposed to being forced into it and then given a mission she doesn't want either, which is creepy as hell. And that's such a small adjustment. And I I don't know why they didn't do it. I don't know why they had to make this as creepy as possible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because because as you said, there is not this is not a movie where at the creative process there is any evidence that they were looking to the perspective of or giving regard to the agency of women at all. As you say, it's like all the plot elements are like completely from a male perspective. There is no self-awareness about the hypocrisy of him tangoing with Tia Carrera and probably like doing all sorts of shenanigans with women as a spy, but then being unironically gutted to learn that his wife is like having lunch with somebody. Mm -hmm. Which there could have been. That could have been a hilarious comedy that's making fun of that hypocrisy. Yeah. But this movie does not have the perspective to do that. It didn't like occur to it. So the scene that I was most sort of dreading and which you referenced last week is the most probably iconic scene from the movie because if you search jamie lee curtis true lies Mm -hmm. it's just like her in her underwear (laughs) in her underpants um (laughs) underpants so what did you make of that scene you know what so that was the scene that i remembered most distinctly watching when i was a kid that Mm -hmm. upset me the most so i was i was similarly dreading it i actually think that the fantastic performance that Jamie Lee Curtis gives throughout that whole sequence of the movie really saves that scene. That was not the hardest scene for me to watch, which I was really fearing that it was. The setup is that her mission that she has been given, that's all part of Harry sort of giving her the spark back in life, is that she's been assigned to play the sex worker who's going to meet with this arms dealer or something, and she's supposed to bug his apartment. And so she goes there. She's been told she just needs to sort of dance for him. So she does the whole strip tease. And then we get into the creepiness where he's like, get on the bed and then tries to kiss her or whatever. But before the kissing, the whole sequence of her getting there, being overwhelmed, she's wearing what is sort of sexy by suburban mom standards, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but is not actually sexy. So she has to sort of rip her dress into sexy form. Yes. And change her makeup and put some water in her hair and then yeah, do she this grabs whole... some water out of a flower pot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just does this whole like looking herself up and down in the mirror, like changing her whole look. It's fantastic. And again, this is a case of if you have an actor who can actually act, they can entirely change the tone of something. Because yes. if you'd had someone, if you had a woman who had the equivalent sort of acting style of Arnold... I think that you, this scene wouldn't necessarily play as funny because the actions are not funny. No. But the way that Jamie Lee is doing them is hilarious. And the way she first goes into the dance, he says dance, and she starts to do this like awkward mom, like <laughs> so, back and forth thumbs, like yeah, rolling your yeah, hands, yeah. wedding oh, dance. And then so he's funny. like, no. And then she gets into the sexy portion. But then halfway through the sexy portion, she kind of tries to do this like stripper pole move on the bedpost, but then completely falls over and then immediately jumps back up like it didn't happen. It is all such a credit to her that none of this is cringy in the way that I was 
deeply fearing it would be. Yeah, she's totally doing this, like, almost, like, Peter Sellers level of, like, physical mm-hmm. prep folly goofy. You know, she, like, stumbles over her high heels in the hallway. Totally puts all this... Again, it gives you that character's perspective on this, like, super spy stuff. Whereas so many... I agree, like, you can just see this movie with, like, a kind of, like, a blank-faced sexy actor. The, like, sexying up of the dress scene could be i feel like we've just seen that scene so many times and it's essentially like purely just thirsty it's just the camera ogling the actor it's just giving you male gaze sexy stuff to look at she honestly like she has this incredible body but she she like like she makes her like boobs funny the way she like Mm -hmm, does this mm -hmm. she like works comedy out of all these things and it again it, it is comedy that's grounded in this person's experience it's like that part of the movie gets the closest to looking from her perspective, which we definitely move away from on either of the bread parts of the movie. <laughs> but in the sandwich, we get the closest to looking from perspective. And I agree, it is a moment where the choices of the actor are going so far to make that work. Well, it's also the one comedic subversion in the movie. Suburban mom becomes a spy. That is subverting the norm, and that's why it's funny. Yeah. Right? And that's what all comedy is supposed to be. Like, powerful man abuses his power. That's not a subversion. But suburban mom becomes sexy spy. That is a subversion. Yes. Yeah. That's like basic comedy concepts that- I don't want to just be like, and and that's the thing. It's like, I think sometimes when we discuss sexism, it can almost, and there are movies where the sexism feels like a little, you know, foam on top of the latte or something, icing on top of the cupcake, where it's sort of like, yeah, that's there, but I can brush it off. And I feel like that maybe would be the elements of the movie that are sort of the Tom Arnold quips or some of the weirdness around the way. But I think that there are some movies where the sexism or and the racism as well are like baked in, right? Like they're the full latte or they are the filling inside the cupcake. They, you cannot separate them mm-hmm. from the thing as a whole. And so it hurts the artistic the value of the movie or the TV show or whatever. And I think that this is a movie where other than the moments where Jamie Lee Curtis like wrestles it away from the movie, wrestles mm-hmm. the sexism away and reclaims it. The rest of the time, the sexism is so baked in that I think it is affecting the artistry of the movie as a whole. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I agree with that. But it's these. But yeah, the dance itself. These, yeah, she's doing fantastic. these like weird, like stank faces while doing the dance. It's like, and it's so, it's like so naked. It's it's just a crazy scene. And it's so long. It's so naked. It's so long. It's so like, I guess they don't show you, but there's like, I think as a, as a, you know, a teenager, when I just like understood less about like sex and sexuality and women's bodies, I was just kind of like taking it all in. Now I'm like, oh, that's like a butthole shot. That's like an implied like, (laughs) like butthole shot right there. Yeah. But, but all the way through it, like she is, it kind of reminds me of her sexuality in A Fish Called Wanda, Mm -hmm. where it's like she goes so hard into the sexuality in a way that is so self-aware and funny the whole time. It's just a really, it it gives a very like interesting look at this person who clearly like strikes me as very like physically, sexually confident, but also with this like razor sharp, constantly present sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's an actual performance, not just a use of, a persona yeah in yeah, the way yeah. that arnold's career is sometimes for good and sometimes for bad yeah. 
Yeah. I, so this was another thing that was bugging me about this movie. I think Jamie Lee Curtis is like 35 when it comes out. So she would have been like 34, 35 when they were filming it. Arnold's a good 11 years older. Mm-hmm. She's already being cast as the mom. She's 34 years old. She's being cast as the mom of a 14-year-old, right? Like it is remarkable to trace her career and see how early those things start to happen. And I think that it is interesting that this movie, at the opening of this movie, she is so much, I think what maybe you and I first knew Jamie Lee Curtis as, which is like slightly dowdy, funny mom. Mm-hmm. And this movie goes on to subvert that and be like, actually, she has this whole sexuality and that she, you know, had been trapping inside and is still there. And she's actually this vibrant sexual figure. Yeah. But it almost feels like for the rest of her career then, or at least a good chunk of her career, they sort of forget about the sexy part and lean more into the <laughs> suburban mom part from the beginning. Like yes. this movie is using that persona to subvert it. But then very quickly, her career is like, oh, no, now you're over 35. We can't subvert that anymore. You just have to be that full time. And that's I don't think that there are many 34 year old men in Hollywood who are cast as the dads of 14 year olds. You know, I don't think that's a thing you see happen as much in the reverse. No, no, indeed. Uh, That would be that would be very it would just suddenly look very jarring because it's so against against type. And yet this thing you're talking about is so totally a, a strong casting convention. I was because I remember the sort of middle chapter of the movie. And frankly, because as I mentioned, I think I most of the time saw it on TV. I don't really have any recollection of the early parts of this movie. I'm not even positive I've ever seen that motorcycle chase, which is one of the reasons mm-hmm. I responded so enthusiastically to it. I feel like I probably saw this movie from about, you know, an hour in almost every time I saw it. Like I've seen the Harrier jet so many times and the like, I'm going to break your neck because I picked my handcuffs so many mm-hmm. times, but Great I didn't ever remember it is as a, as a good bit. Um, I like that that scene. But I didn't remember how much of the beginning she is really already, despite being, as you say, so young, already entering the mode that we're going to see her in for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. For the next, uh, Yeah, you and I had been talking a little bit off mic about just trying to parse out like what was Jamie Lee Curtis's career between A Fish Called Wanda and this. Mm-hmm. And it felt like we were both sort of like, she f- maybe feels a little bit lost in this period. Like she's yeah. sort of, she plays sort of more of like a maternal role in My Girl, even if she's not anyone's actual mom. But it feels like, I don't know, there's not a clear like thesis for <laughs> this part of her career before no. she gets into full comedy mom mode. And maybe that does sort of speak to Hollywood's unsure what to do with women in this age bracket. Maybe that's sort of coming through in this period of her career. Yeah, she does one, uh, she does a cop drama, Blue Steel, uh, which I have not seen. You have not seen? No, I haven't, although I really want to. It's a Catherine Bigelow movie. That's right. That does sort of feel like, yeah, this would be cool to see Jamie Lee Curtis as the star of an action movie, not the wife of the star of an action movie. (laughs) Yes, I'd be very curious to see what it's about. I think it's like a, there's like a cat and mouse serial killer element to Mm -hmm. it. I do like those things. I do, as we've sort of mentioned before, like kind of steer away from, like, I I didn't- Pro-cop- yeah, propaganda. just just propaganda. I just didn't think to myself like I really want to make sure I watch that so I consider it for this. I thought about it, and if I'd had a little bit more free time, maybe I would have watched it and maybe we'd be talking about it. But I was I was just I looked past it. But I I would like to see her in that leading action role cuz she doesn't really 
to my knowledge, ever get a chance to do that. Yeah, other than in the um, horror stuff, which is sort of a different yes. vibe. Yes, it it's is. funny. This period in Hollywood, I don't know if this is a matter of maybe these movies didn't really connect or they didn't really have staying power hmm. or maybe we're just too young to remember them. But like she does some movie in the 80s with John Travolta called Perfect where she's like a fitness instructor. And I was watching a trailer for this movie and I don't know. I mean, it seemed like it was sort of high profile because there was a lot of press around it although i think it then flopped and she also did this movie that i truly had never heard of but i watched a trailer for it called forever young where mel gibson it's like a captain america situation where he is cryogenically frozen and then woken up years later it's like a romantic drama he gets frozen because his his wife or like his lover is in a coma for a year so he's like i'll be cryogenically frozen for a year and then i'll wake up but he accidentally wakes up in the 90s and i think jamie lee curtis is a nurse and elijah wood is her son or something anyway i think that movie made like over a hundred million dollars and i was like it's wild that a movie can have some impact in an era and then there's just for whatever reason everyone just collectively forgets about it what do you think I'm like, what What have we seen that everyone has talked about in the past few years that right, we that we'll all forget? Like, maybe we're forgetting it already. I mean, the past few years with the pandemic have just been their own version yeah. of insane. But yeah, some movies, they just uh, they just don't um, stick to the ribs of the collective psyche, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I don't really have a strong sense. I wonder, yeah, the, the other thing I said off mic was I need like a, like a slow burn podcast to be like, now what was it actually like in 1994 when somebody said Jamie Lee Curtis? Like, what did you think? Yeah. Pre-activia. Right, and she was on this, um, we were talking about this too, she was on this ABC sitcom called Anything But Love with Richard Lewis that ran for four seasons. I saw a clip of it in her little Vanity Fair, Jamie Lee Curtis talks about her career retrospective, and it looked funny, it looked like a fun role. She speaks really highly about that experience. She talks about it, she doesn't have any stage background, which, like Emily Blunt, for instance, at least, has had some, mm-hmm. some stage background, and a lot of actors do when they talk about having their roots there. Uh, Art Malik featured in this film definitely does. He's like a total Shakespearean. But she said that doing the sitcom was the first time she'd ever performed in front of a live audience regularly. And she found that really intoxicating. And she sort of is saying, you know, in 2018, she's saying, I've never really gotten to have that experience again. And I've really been wanting to have something like that again. And yet, yeah, this is another one that just I've never heard of. Like there are a lot of, there are a lot of sitcoms that I've never seen. Like, I don't think I've really ever seen Cheers or Three's Company or Frasier but I can tell you a lot about all those sitcoms. And yet I don't know mm-hmm. anything about anything but love. I yeah, don't think I'd heard I of had it never heard of it either. Yeah. And I was like, oh, maybe that lasted for like, you know, half a season or something. But no, they did 56 episodes. You know, and this was not really a time where it was common for people to hop between TV and movies. Mm-hmm. And so to some degree, I wonder if that was a little, I mean, certainly that would have kept her busy. And she would have been doing less movies because of that. But then I also wonder if that sort of, hurt her image in any way to be like oh you're now just a tv actress although her whole attitude just seems to be so much like i don't care i do whatever i want (laughs) maybe Mm -hmm. that has given her the confidence to hop between projects in the way that some people that are a little more anxious about their careers don't yeah yeah so yeah but then true lies is a big thing she wins the golden globe for this so this is certainly a big and so i guess in some ways a turning point but really more so like a last hurrah like i think maybe a last hurrah for like sexy sexy jamie Jamie. wow Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Uh, yeah, maybe. I guess because, like, yeah, she's 34. She's on the brink of uh, being middle-aged. 
She's on the brink of being a haggard old, <laughs> haggard old woman, whereas Arnold Schwarzenegger, 11 years older than her, is still playing still the prime and will continue to do so for like at least another 10 <laughs> years. Yeah. And there they talked about doing a, a True Lies 2. And I could you could totally see the setup for it. I mean, it's a very actually sequelable movie. Mm-hmm. But they they talked about like, I think it basically was like it went into hold uh, around 9-11. Mm-hmm. Which, which is maybe an, a segue to appraising all of the Islamist terrorist stuff in here, mm-hmm. which is basically cringe-inducing from start to finish. I mean, I think the most charitable thing I could say about it is sort of grounded in the fact that like, when you hear Art Malik talk about playing that part and sort of helming that crew of people, that he basically says, like, yeah, I thought it was a very funny script. The, the part, uh, you know, it was a hoot. Action movies are all about tempo. I liked the comic bits in that movie. Like, the only, only way you can, I think, not be really bothered by it is to completely, completely take it out of any, take it out of context, like dismiss any seriousness it mm-hmm. might have. And I will say that pre-9-11, it was definitely just like, I just have to imagine the whole relationship to these things was different. Now, 9-11 was when we were both like I think 11 years old, maybe mm-hmm. we were 12. And so we were just barely beginning to be conscious. Like certainly in, I have no personal memories of like what the general relationship to terrorism and Islamist terrorism and like Islamophobia in the United States was. Mm-hmm. Definitely after 9-11, you have this incredible burst of like virulent, violent, anti-Muslim and anti-Arab and just like general racist xenophobic sentiment like explode not not just sentiment but like action energy uh government action like physical violence and I had kind of forgotten until interesting I listened to this is a strange way to get into it but it was a an episode of the you're wrong about podcast which do you ever listen to that show no. It was very cool. It's very smart. And I started with this one about the Dixie Chicks and the sort of like, it was part of a series on cancel culture. And it was talking about the Dixie Chicks being canceled for their extremely uncontroversial statements about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it kind of clarified something I hadn't even realized at the time because I kind of went to a little tiny hippie lefty school where criticism of the war was like the sort of dominant paradigm. I had not realized how much literal censorship and jingoistic fall in line there had been in 2001, 2002, 2003 following this. But so that's an interesting thing to look back at. But generally, like living in that world, I think it is so clearly deeply unconscionable to make a movie that's so blithely sets up these like rabbling, stupid, hateful, unshaven, deeply caricatured, Mm -hmm. stereotypical Middle Eastern terrorists and just makes so much light, fun sport out of the setting them up as the bad guys and throwing them off of buildings and Again, it's just the movie punching down at the wrong target, right? Like, obviously, fair game to punch down a terrorist. But when you are creating a heightened fictional group of people, and you could have made those terrorists anything, I think James Cameron in defending himself at the time was like, well, I could have made them Irish terrorists. And it's like, okay, well, why didn't you do that? Because (laughs) if if you're claiming it didn't matter who they were, you could have picked a group of people who are not you know, oppressed in Western society, as in a group of people, as in Muslims and Arabs, you could have made your terrorists a different group of people if you wanted to avoid this. Again, I think the movie's just 
thoughtless and racist. And yes, the 90s were a different time. Like, I think that it was a time where America felt very safe and all this stuff felt very far away. And it's like, sure, our action heroes can kiss in front of a nuclear bomb. That'll be a fun thing because nothing bad will ever happen in America now that the Cold War is over. That was an insane scene. Anyway. Truly insane. But at the same time, I do want to point out for as much as I think, in general, a lot of retrospectives on past pop culture are keen to be like, well, it was a different time, things were different, people didn't know. But actually, there was a lot of pushback against this at the time, and specifically from Arab American groups like the National Council of Islamic Affairs, the American Arab Relations Committee, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. These were groups that all came together to specifically try to boycott the film or call out its racist elements. So the idea that like, oh, no one knew at the time, when people say that, what they mean is like the average white person was not forced to think about this at the time, but actually, the people that this affected have always thought about it and have always pushed back against it. And I just think it's important to keep that in mind that these topics were not these topics were debated earlier than recently. It's just that those debates were not mainstream in the same way. Yes, but there was a major collective contemporary to the film pushback Mm -hmm. from all these groups. I remember I read a little article in the Orlando Sentinel about, I think it was one of the groups you mentioned, the uh, Council on American Islamic Relations. And uh, this, this spokesperson, Ibrahim Hooper, talking about we, we got them to put in this disclaimer. What they ultimately did was put in something that said the most bland, like this film has no, none of the groups depicted in this film are meant to represent any actual cultural beliefs. He's like, we stayed to the end to see it. It was me and the three janitors who saw it. It was after the thing that said no animals were harmed in this film. And I think you can also see that in some of the measures. I think it's troubling to look at some of the measures that the film does take that probably were seen as like, oh, pat on the back. Like this wasn't the sort of wanton racism of the 1960s. This is far beyond that because, you know, we, we didn't call them Arabs or Muslims in the movie. We just called them Crimson Jihad, which is, you know, clearly a word that is an Arabic word connected to Islam that was being already at the time, like, stretched to be understood by Western audiences to mean something other than it means. And, like, we put in Faisal, and, you know, you can sort of tell he's a Middle Eastern guy and he's a good guy. There was a similar thing. One of my my most, uh, like... Probably the most like the most fond feelings I've had in my life for a very, very conservative piece of media was how in middle and high school I was like a I was a devotee of twenty four, mm-hmm. which is it's just like a Patriot Act era wet dream. Um yeah. so that like several seasons was like, here's these like, you know, Islamic fundamentalists that wanna shoot a missile at the president and Jack has to stop them. But like there was one moment where there was a season I think in particular where there was some hubbub about 24 like so actively stirring up an already active Islamophobic sentiment. And then they, Kiefer Sutherland came on before an episode and was like, you know, we understand that, you know, most Arab Americans and most Middle Eastern Americans are true patriotic Americans. And then in that episode, there were like two Middle Eastern brothers who were like, we hate these people as much as you do, Jack. We're going to help you fight them off. And it's the same thing in this. There was a quote from Ibrahim Hooper of that Council on American-Islamic Relations on the character Faisal. He said, an Arab step and fetch it, he says of the character. You'll notice the way he proves himself is by killing other Arabs. So you can see these little ways in which the film was like, no, 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 we're not racist. Mm -hmm. We are aware of the problematic things here. But if you look at it now, and certainly if you looked at it at the time with any sort of progressive critical media analysis eye, you would just say... 
yeah, this is going to be so dangerous. As you say, is like there is no subversion or creative excitement in like punching down at a group that already has an extremely tough time of it in America, mm-hmm. in, in America where this film will be seen. Mm-hmm. All you get is a sort of like a gleeful confirmation of the biases of, you know, the most toxic parts of the audience's psyche. Yeah. And that takes us back to return to the plot too. This is where, as we mentioned, the the villains disappear for 45 minutes and then swoop back in at the end, mm-hmm. capture Harry and Helen, and then are very central to the, the second piece of bread on this sandwich, <laughs> which as you mentioned, is almost then in and of itself split into two. It's a marbled, a marbled loaf, if you will. Oh my nice, and, Caroline, and that nice. is uh, <laughs> that is we get half, which is H- Helen and Harry sort of coming to terms. She realizes he's she's been, he's been playing her this whole time, but they have to work together to save the day. They end up doing that in this like very famous and frankly very cool like bridge explosion sequence mm-hmm. where Helen has to get lifted out of a limo into a helicopter before it you know goes off the bridge like classic stuff. And then the second half of the marbled loaf is. A almost complete standalone sequence where Arnold goes off on his own to rescue their daughter. Mm-hmm. What do you think of this general um, I chunk th- of the movie? I think that having, they're not on equal standing, but having Harry and Helen at least both aware of what's going on does lead to a fun chapter of the movie. I like Art Malik's performance, so I like how much of it we get to see in that part. I mean, I think he is also chewing the scenery. I mean, maybe he would now, or maybe in private, he would say like, yeah, it was, you know, xenophobic garbage. But he he talked basically about the movie being a hoot. And I think you can see him like having, frankly, like w- with, with James Cameron's like, it could have been anybody. The thing that is frustrating is like, yeah, it really could have been anybody because mm-hmm. all they are is just like wanton baddie. There is nothing specific about them except for one kind of like easy throwaway line about like, you've bombed our cities from afar and now we can strike back. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's just kind of like, like a classic schlock movie grandstanding villain stuff. And I think Art Malik has fun with that. So I like watching him get to make his monologues. This has the like sodium pentothal or whatever it is, the like truth serum scene, which is fun. Uh, and that's a good use of Arnold, I think. Yeah, give him something I actually really think dopey. Arnold, yes, Arnold zoned out on truth serum. Mm-hmm. That like fits really well with his skill set as an actor, right? Which is yeah. just- complete monotone that's a really funny use when he's like oh yeah we're going to die and his whole thing is like oh i picked up the locks like all of that is actually very that's a really good use of him as an actor i think yes and her stuff in there is medium how do you feel about the like the like stupid the gun falls down the stairs scene you know what i actually really liked it this is a sequence where she's trying to use like a machine gun to take people out she has no skills at shooting Mm -hmm. and it becomes a lot at the end of this movie becomes like looney tunes just kind of throughout and this is very much a dark looney tune sequence where she drops the machine gun it goes it keeps falling down the stairs and it takes out everyone and only the bad guys in the room like somehow each bullet magically takes out the perfect target while leaving you know arnold and her unharmed i thought it was really funny again it's unfortunate that the victims of this as we're saying were probably not the group of victims like make them the kkk right when you're in doubt in your movie as to who the bad guy should be make them the kkk then we can all cheer on that they are destroyed but if we imagine like this gag of making fun of sort of the perfect shots in action movies the perfect perfect gunshots in action movies and the ability to only kill the bad guys mm-hmm. saying like that could happen just from this gun falling like that's as realistic as a person being able to do that yeah 
I think is actually very funny. Yeah. It makes me think about, have you ever seen Bad Boys 2? No, but I have been meaning to because I saw Bad Boys 1 and really enjoyed it. You've never seen Bad Boys 2? I've never seen it. That's a, uh, that's, that's. But I do love Will Smith. That's a line from uh, Hot Fuzz. you never seen Bad Boys 2? Oh. Anyway. Well, there you um, go. I haven't. So, yeah, you should see. Ba- I've never seen Bad Boys 1. I get the feeling that. <laughs> there you go. Between us, we've got the full set. Well, I've seen half of Bad Boys for Life on an airplane. Have you seen Bad Boys for Life? No, because I have to see Bad Boys. I'm not going to see Bad Boys for Life before I see Bad Boys. That's right. Two. I'm not like you watching things out of sequence. I, I guess I'm a, a little uh, uh, non-traditionalist. Um, <laughs> that's making a principle out of it. I just watched Bad Boys 2 because it was on TV. Um but Bad Boys 2, I think of Michael Bay maybe as being even less of a compassionate filmmaker than James Cameron. Mm-hmm. But at least in Bad Boys 2, he makes it Martin Lawrence and Will Smith as the protagonist, and they do fight the KKK. So, <laughs> Yo. you know, at least he has that going for <laughs> Thank him. Thank you, Michael Bay. Yeah. But a, per- a real champion for the underdog, I would say, Michael Bay famously. Yeah, hardly. But, uh, but like, you know, at least just... It's like sometimes it's like it's so easy to just make your thing a little bit better. Like just just cast some actors of color in your lead roles. Like just try that and so much of the other bullshit you pull will be excused. Anyway, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought I thought that is a fun a fun chapter of the movie. This sort of ties into your suggestion about like Helen going along voluntarily and the power imbalances that go through this. But I was talking about how I was going to be watching this movie in a group with my brother this weekend and someone else. And someone said, I've never seen True Eyes. What is it? And my brother sort of volunteered. He's like, it's kind of like, it's this thing where she is to be a spy. You know what? It's kind of like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but like only one of them knows, only the husband like knows what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. And it made me think about how this movie does have a lot of similarities. And I think Mr. and Mrs. Smith probably actually similarly owes a lot to this movie. I mean, you were talking about how a lot of movies owe their sort of action comedy blend to this, but that one really does because it's about, oh, we have a boring, lifeless suburban marriage. Oh, we're like, all the sex is gone out of it. Oh, but then once we get the like action spy together, that's what's going to bring it in. But that movie just like, that fixes the fundamental problem that you're talking about. It's like, okay, they're both spies and they're both lying. Now you have something that feels a lot more equanimous. Now, I haven't watched Mr. and Mrs. Smith in a long time, but... No, I think that that's completely it. And I actually think this is my final note for this movie. Mm -hmm. Again, just basic storytelling choices that should have been made is that obviously the third, the final act of the the final half of the marbled bread Mm -hmm. should have been... Harry and Helen work together to save their daughter, Absolutely. right? That's what this entire movie has been building up to. She's wanted to be a spy. She's slowly learning the way. This will be the thing that brings them together and save their marriage. And I would actually further suggest that the ending should be that Harry messes up in some way. And it's Helen who does the final solution. And this is him realizing how much he's been underestimating her their whole marriage. Yes. And, sh- and again, that's a subversion. What happens instead, I want to come up with a name for this trope. It's like the one punch resolution, right? This happens so often in movies. There's a guy who's done repeatedly done horrible, horrible things in a systemic way. The woman finds out about it, punches him in the face, and the entire conflict is over. It's forgiven. It is. That is, it's such a common trope. I associate, I don't mind it in Thor the Dark World, but there's a part in Thor the Dark World where Jane, Natalie Portman's character, slaps Loki and goes like, that was for New York. And then that's the resolution there. That I think that's a fine New moment York. for- <laughs> Yeah. I forgot about that. He fucking like nuked New York. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I like feel like the trope should whenever I see this trope, I think of it as the like that was for New York trope where it's like, okay, we needed we know we needed to acknowledge this bad thing. 
ooh, isn't it feminist that the girl punched a guy? Conflict over. And that's completely what this movie does. Helen is so righteously angry and is like, I'm never going to speak to you again. Punches him. Then he sort of helps save the day. The conf- Their conflict is never mentioned again. It's completely resolved. She doesn't really get to do anything heroic after that, which I think is a bummer because I think she's actually very – it's very fun to watch her figure out how to be a spy yes. in the striptease sequence. Absolutely. Figure out how to dress sexy and she's got to bug this lamp and she has all this business with dropping the bug but then getting it back, doing all that stuff. Like watching her become a competent spy and especially given that the final little epilogue of this movie is we discover she has actually become a spy. Mm-hmm. It's just so obvious to me that the end of this movie should be her becoming a spy. What actually happens is that he rescues her from the limo – they have their big mushroom cloud kiss. Can I say just real fast that she actually yeah, did hang from the helicopter over the bridge? Yes. Yeah. That I does. think not the. Sometimes it's been reported as she did the full stunt herself, which I don't think is true. But I do think there were elements of it that she did. I feel like you could only have a stunt professional do the thing where they actually exit the car, which yes. is which is practically happening and is such an amazing. Oh, the stunt. the whole bridge sequence is really great, ridiculous, but in sort of like a really fun way. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, the effects in this movie, again, James Cameron knows how to make a movie. Sure. But the the resolution is like, they're kissing. Tom Arnold is like, hey, um, Harry, BT dubs your daughter's kidnapped, but like, it's okay, don't worry about it. How? Harry doesn't how? even tell Helen this is how? happening. At- the daughter lives in Washington, D.C. <laughs> You know, don't you remember that Tia Carrera sees one photo of her and obviously that gives her all the information that she needs to know yeah, to but, but it's, it's, make all of this happen? But Carolyn, it's that night. It's the night yeah. of the nuke. How does – it's like Tia season and then like how do they get her from Washington, D.C. down to Miami in that one like morning? Whatever. Whatever. That's not the point. So, yes, they capture, they've captured Dana. Yeah. There is a very funny – I don't know if it's an intentional joke or not. I don't know how you took this, but he finds out that the daughter's – or no, you know what it is? They kiss and it's Tom Arnold's calling him over to tell him about the daughter. Mm-hmm. So they kiss and Tom Arnold's like, hey, Harry, I need you. And Helen's like, it's okay. Go do your job. And he goes, bye, and then turns around and runs away. <laughs> and it's so funny, but I genuinely don't know if that was supposed to be your joke or not. The the speed with which he goes, bye, and runs <laughs> Do you know what no, I'm talking I about? I didn't catch that. Bye. I don't think it was probably intended as a joke, just based on anyway, your description he, of it. He doesn't even tell her that their daughter's kidnapped. He no. goes off and then I kind of hated this entire last action scene that's just him. Because again, the daughter hasn't been a character. They didn't even need a daughter in this movie. They could have just been a married couple. Yeah. And we could have lost the last 20 minutes and it was just they solved their marriage. Because it isn't like he's had a relationship with the daughter and now it's being resolved in some way. Or, oh, they had this one issue with trust and communication and then they've resolved it. It's like they didn't really speak. He didn't know how old she was. His best friend was freaking out about the teenage daughter's virginity. And then he commandeers. And then that's all we've been established about And then about he commandeers them. a major piece of military hardware that he clearly doesn't entirely know how to use to like go off and like blow up a building in Miami to suddenly save her. You're so right that Jamie Lee Curtis should have been involved in the final act that I had written her into it in my head. I like, I had totally. like, I had pictured her. In fact, I'd put the gun falling down the stairs in the stairs of the skyscraper at the end which would have been great to the point that when he gets in the jet and gives her this wink and flies off i'm like how does she get there 
And then I was like, wait, she's not going, is she? Oh, she's just out of the movie until the epilogue. Damn, that's really nonsensical. It just makes no sense because the point of this movie has been the story of a marriage. Mm -hmm. If there is a point of this movie, (laughs) which is questionable, it's about marriage. And to all of a sudden pivot it to be about a father daughter relationship we haven't seen anything about. And to again make the point just like Harry's always been a great dad. It's not like Harry's like, oh, I am regretting how bad of a father I was and I'm making up for it. The whole point is like, Dana, you need to trust me. And it's like, yeah, she doesn't trust you because you are a terrible parent. And this is not, there's no thematic resolution here that is meaningful to the character arcs. There's just a lot of Looney Tune antics with the terrorists. Because when you say like, what is the point of the movie? Is it about a marriage? The point, the point of the movie clearly from the actual perspective of the filmmakers is how can this spy who juggles a spy life and a secret life beat the spy threat and bring his wife and daughter like kind of in line Mm -hmm. and into like alignment with him. And how can he juggle it all? So that's the actual thread that runs through it all, not this relationship. The reason it then kind of becomes about a marriage is because Jamie Lee Curtis's performance is so Mm. charismatic and so magnetic that we then remember this movie as being about a relationship. But really, the only thread through it is like, can Harry Tasker bring the elements of his life into place where he can sort of command them all again? Can he like beat the terrorists, get his family to love him, which is very like active, aggressive, like make them love him again? So that's why it is not strange for the movie to then leave Helen for the last 20 minutes and go do this other thing. And all of that is truly in service of... James Cameron sort of says openly, like, I think of action scenes I want to see, and then I make them happen. And that's really, like, the skill of his that's on display here. So, like, why does that last scene make sense? Because, like, he wanted to do this thing with a Harrier jet, which was clearly, Mm -hmm. like, a technology that excited him and was, like, maybe just becoming sort of widely known or something. And it is also, I think, yeah, it's the part that, like, functions the least because I love practical stunts. I love absurdist shit like a horse getting into an elevator. (laughs) And yeah, I just am not like turned on by like watching the jet go like, yeah, like quite as much as probably people, at least James Cameron thought his, yeah. I don't completely poo poo jets. I mean, frankly, I know people, we're having the air and water show in Chicago this weekend. And so you can hear them like screaming around, which is very annoying. But some people are like, and it brings me no pleasure to see the jets. I'm like, Oh, I kind of like to see the jets fly over, but then I, it's a combination where like I get angry if they make noise and I can't see them. I'm like, show yourself to me. But (laughs) even so, there's like, there's so much ogling of the jet, which is connected again to like, there's a larger thing that almost all of our action movies, the, the dominant strain in action movies is like, so fetishizes like militarism and particularly like American military technology. We should talk about the new Suicide Squad movie because mm, I've I got a, seen it yet. Oh, I got a lot of thoughts, and one of them is that it does that. But bonus episode. Bonus app. Get ready. Yeah, we could do. I think the problem is that the bridge sequence is just better than the jet sequence. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're going to do both, do the jet sequence first because it's fun but less interesting, and you sort of don't want to watch that after what feels like the final climax in the bridge sequence. Yeah. Well, you I know. will say also, I think that you very accurately described the plot of this movie as being just fully hairy getting everyone to love him Mm -hmm. and i think you want to extend that to a more meta level i feel like the thesis of this movie is i james cameron 
making movies and going off and completely ignoring my family is the most important thing in the world. And everyone needs to shut up and let me do that because actually I rule and what I'm doing is really important. Yeah. Because there is no point in this movie where it says, should Harry change his behavior at all to make a better family life? It's like, no, everyone needs to appreciate him more. Yeah. I took a class in college called, I forget, it might have just been called Psychology of Film, but a more accurate name would have been like Psychobiography of Filmmakers. Because the teacher's like major contribution to the field of psychology, what he was kind of known for was the idea of like, you can watch films and basically psychoanalyze the filmmakers there. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit pop sci, like you can get into some crazy things. That was actually the class for which I wrote that paper about Batman Begins, where it was about like, the sort of like weird like deceit and closed off and lies in the Nolan family and how that played into Nolan's films. But let me pull up a quote from this EW article. It was Cameron. I mean, one of the quotes was, not doing your best is hurting the movie, not hurting me. He says, if still work. I care about the film. I'm sure people call me an asshole too. Thank you very much. It isn't a stretch to see Cameron's double life in the Tasker story. I had a daughter 16 months ago and I haven't seen her nearly as much as I would have wanted. It's a big strain. That strain didn't help his marriage to producer Gail Ann Hurd, who co-wrote Terminator and produced Aliens in the Abyss, or his marriage to director Catherine Bigelow, point break, either. After Cameron's breakup with Bigelow, who is now directing the futuristic erotic thriller Strange Days for his company, he got together with Linda Hamilton. But about six months ago, she moved into her own place with their baby girl, Josephine Archer Cameron. We like it better that way, Cameron insists. She's very tough and independent. That's what I like about her. How can I celebrate that and try to change that at the same time? It's a classic dilemma. And he says of his two ex-wives, they were both film professionals, both as workaholic as I am. If you're in a relationship with someone who understands the drive because they're driven, then you run the risk of driving in different directions. All my movies are about something I've experienced. So I think what you're sort of implying about Cameron's personal, interpersonal life and worldview being reflected clearly in this and his like refusal to then take that idea to task, or maybe not even refusal, but you know, lack of awareness that that is something that could be taken to task. I think that's a uh, pop psychologist we might be. I think that's a theory that holds some water. Yeah, I mean, if you want to, I do feel like James Cameron is a is a great choice for that level of psychoanalysis just because his films are so obsessive, even to the point of like, I got obsessed with just searching for the Titanic. So I just basically made an entire era changing blockbuster just so i could justify like going down to look at the titanic you know like he is he wears his obsession so much on his sleeve and the i mean the story like the amount of major a-listers he's almost drowned in various films is wild you know (laughs) and and certainly a, a guy that i think in his personal life has a lot of collaborators who love him obviously bill paxton works with him on i think every film or at least almost every film but then i think also is the cameron is also the kind of guy who can make enemies with his obsessive perfectionistic tendencies as a director yeah yeah and i think it's well it's it's an it's not even an open secret it's just open that he runs an extremely difficult set that a lot of people refuse to come back to and even the people who do come back to sort of say like yeah it's really it's really ass kicking yeah i'd forgotten that paxton was in all of this i forgot that paxton is game over man it's like his guy yeah well lucky him to get such a good guy as him, Bucky, Bill Bucky who is I mean have we said like so funny in this movie yeah he's hysterical a ridiculous character I even think the degree to which this movie is obsessed with humiliating him winds up being like not all that funny no like, it's that mean also feels cruel yes yes Agreed. but is certainly I think Paxton plays it all beautifully yeah any other like standouts in this any other things that 
Well, there was something that was like slightly heavier that if we can take a moment to talk about. So just like a heads up to listeners, we'll be discussing something like related to the Me Too movement. So warning there. But this was also one of the very unfortunate legacies of this movie is that Elijah Dushku, who plays the daughter, who was 12 when they were making this movie, has within the past couple of years after the Me Too movement um, come out and said that the main stunt coordinator on this movie sexually molested her during the filming of this movie. And then after she sort of reported that to someone in her life and that adult confronted him, she then had an accident during one of the stunts that she thinks he sort of purposefully did as revenge of this. Um, The stunt coordinator has come out and said that you know, he denies these allegations, although pretty much all of the cast, and I believe James Cameron as well, have voiced their support for Eliza Dushku. And actually, specifically, Jamie Lee Curtis wrote an op-ed in the Huffington Post that was voicing her support for Dushku and also just talking about the difficulties that child performers have on sets and the weird ways in which they are sort of treated as like adult collaborators by sort of everyone and that that maybe leaves them less protected as children. And we can link in our show notes both to um, Eliza Dushku's story herself, and then we'll also link to the Jamie Lee Curtis piece about that. Yeah. You just told me about that article like right before we recorded. I'd, I'd seen on Wikipedia the, the coverage of this, and it mentioned those. It mentioned Tom Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Cameron, and Jamie Lee Curtis tweeting in support. But I've only had a quick look through it while we're recording. But she is getting into some some very interesting, like, just just sort of picking away at one of the sort of like roots of danger in Hollywood around child child actors who whom we know are such a such a sort of like troubled and unprotected class of of workers who are like such an essential part of so many important films and yet it seems like there is not really like a a major institutional push to reevaluate or to look at how they are treated Mm-hmm. And she's sort of saying, yeah. like, we're all responsible for that, in a sense. Yeah. And something Jamie Lee Curtis actually pointed out was that, like, so much of her career has been around children. Yeah. Like, even when you think back to the first Halloween movie, she's playing a babysitter. And a lot of her scenes are with children. And obviously, she has, you know, this 90, 90s period where we're saying she's already getting into mom roles. And then, obviously, in the, in the 2000s, that's such a big part of her career. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, she's sort of – it's interesting how much that has been – a through line of her career as well. Yeah. Anyway, so I guess just in general, like all the props and support to Eliza Dushku for speaking up about that and trying to make the industry safer for other people. Yeah. Also, just in general, Eliza Dushku, great. Phenomenal on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Phenomenal on Bring It On. See, I've never seen, I've actually never seen either of those things. You've never seen Bring It On? No, I've never seen Bring It On. Oh my gosh, Ned, let's watch Bring It On sometime. Okay. I'm down. I mean, it's got everything I know about it seems like I would love to see it. It's just one of those movies that I have just never, ever come across my plate. I would be thrilled to share your first viewing of Bring It On with you. Cool. I'm, uh, bring it on. Um, I'm trying to think if there's other. Oh, I liked the line when Arnold has the truth serum and she's like, did you kill anyone? He's like, yeah, but they were all bad. <laughs> Uh, I like the the part where Faisal says, right here in River City. Yeah, I liked that. I actually do like Faisal a lot. Yeah, he's a good he's a good character. I mean, as we say, like maybe kind of like a token to excuse the movie's jingoistic xenophobic excesses, but still a good performance from that mm-hmm. actor whose name I actually don't know. Um Let's consult the wizard of IMDB. Grant Heslove. 
And I think he maybe is a frequent George Clooney collaborator, hmm. actor and director, writing collaborator with George Clooney, four Oscar, oh, he, which have earned him four Oscar nominations. He wrote Argo and produced it. Wow, Argo, he's a writer. Argo, fuck yourself. Argo, fuck yourself. I think yourself. he, uh, <laughs> did he write it or did he just produce it? Maybe he, uh, I think he just produced it. Oh, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, I think he's great in this movie. I actually really love the shot where we're, it's in the the kidnapped daughter segment of the movie and they're in the building where they're holding the hostages. And we, Tom Arnold has been like, oh, we have a guy on the inside, but we don't quite know who it is. Mm-hmm. And then a news crew comes in and they kind of hold off on the reveal. But then the cameraman turns around and it's Faisal and you're like, oh, he got in there. Yeah. That's a fun. I always actually found that like to be maybe the most satisfying moment in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And then he has a gun hidden in his like camera that he pulls out to sort of save the day. Yeah. I enjoyed that sequence. Good old Faisal. I like the low battery camera bit. Stupid. Oh, yeah. Stupid, but I enjoy it. Very funny. They're recording the sort of terrorist dramatic speech. That is actually very funny. And the low battery thing is flashing and the guy filming is like having a panic attack about what will happen if the battery runs out. And yeah, yeah, that was very funny. Yeah. I would be curious to watch the French film and see how much is lifted directly from that Mm -hmm. versus invented for this movie. Yeah. I'd be curious as well. One day, whenever we do a series on whoever is in that film. Seems somewhat unlikely. Whichever but, uh, French actors are in that film. Yeah, maybe. There's some fun French 80s and 90s comedies that I saw in uh, in French class in middle school that maybe I could. Mm. The Dîner des Cons. The, uh, this one about skiing. I don't know. Anyway, I think after this conversation, my unqualified recommendation for True Lies would be go to YouTube and watch True Lies Horse Motorcycle Chase. <laughs> And I think you can enjoy a great, fun, practical, innovative action scene without too many problematic elements from start to finish. And the rest of the movie, I don't know, take it or leave it. Uh, Do a vibe check and uh, see how you're feeling. Like, there's there's clearly some fun stuff in here to piece through. But as we say, like, it's a hard movie to champion. Mm -hmm. You know, like, how am I really going to go to bat for a movie that has so much, like, I don't know, just sort of like moral rot which as you say like just weakens it as a piece of art it's not some it's not some like sjw like oh i really love it but i like i don't want to get canceled it's like it it these things actually make the final product weaker as a piece of art and if you are really like able to look around them it's probably because like something some part of it's like aren't clicking or you just like don't take some of these things seriously, but but or you also- just have nostalgia for it. I yeah. feel like that's mostly what this movie is coasting on, which I completely understand. I think I have movies like that as well that you just saw them at the right age and they lodged into your brain and mm-hmm. you feel affection for them. So I am sympathetic to that point of view. But I would say my recommendation for True Lies is watch T2 instead because it is in every way a superior <laughs> film artistically and socially. And it, when you have a movie that great, why do you need to watch True Lies? Heard. Heard. So, rinsing ourselves off from all of that, we are moving on to the fourth film in our Jamie Lee Curtis series, which I think will come at this point as a surprise to no one, as while it may not be in the wider American cultural consciousness or like in the AFI Institute (laughs) rankings, while it may not be her defining role, clearly for so many people of our generation, the, the iconic Jamie Lee Curtis role is as a suburban mom, and then a rebellious suburban teenage girl trapped inside the body of her mom in Freaky Friday. 
opposite Lindsay Lohan, whom we've never discussed, but I'm very excited to do so. Mm. A film I haven't revisited. Likewise, I really haven't revisited for years and years and years. Unlike a lot of other films of that era, I just haven't seen Freaky Friday in a long time. So as is often the case, I'm super stoked to revisit that. When's the last time you saw it? Well, here's a little fact about me. Although I went into this series saying the main thing I knew Jamie Lee Curtis from was Freaky Friday. I've never seen Freaky Friday. (laughs) It's just that the advertisements for it were so ubiquitous on probably the Disney Channel, which was a channel I watched a lot as a youth, Mm -hmm. uh, that I feel like I just experienced this movie through osmosis. I have never actually seen it. So this will be a first time viewing for me. I am so curious about what our conversation is going to be like. (laughs) Me too. We have a special friend joining us who we're excited to talk to. We love to have friends on here. And that is going to be our conversation next week. But uh, for this week, Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Sita. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wanserski. You can follow us on Twitter at Roll Calling and email us at rollcalling at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-E. You can also rate and review our podcast on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we'll be back for a very freaky Friday. Until then, make it fast. My horse is getting tired. <laughs> Great. I feel like I did so many Arnold impressions did, in this episode. Caroline, every single one was funny to me. <laughs>